certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Almost a year to the day, on the 25th of November 2019, the trial of the century got underway. The biggest, most expensive and most anticipated case in WA criminal history. Together, through this podcast, we embarked on a legal journey in what would be an extraordinary trial that finally led to justice. Hello and welcome to Claremont in Conversation, this special episode recorded in front of a live audience at the University of Western Australia. I'm Natalie Bongiolo and joining me today we have Kate Ryan, our podcast producer, veteran court reporter from Channel 7, Alison Fan, and West Australian's legal affairs editor and author of Enigma of the Dark, Tim Clark. It's good to be back with you all again. Yeah. They keep using that veteran word. Yes, I know. Don't you love it, Tim? <laughs> I do. <laughs> we get told off every time afterwards for using the word veteran. Um, so, Tim, we've spent the better part of the last week locked in the studio listening to your lovely voice and you've been narrating your audiobook to us. And despite the amount of information that we heard in court during this trial, I think what to me, when I've been listening to you, is just absolutely gobsmacking is the amount of information that didn't go before the trial and that's some of the things we're going to talk about today. Yeah, yeah, there was a bit. Um, it's hard to believe given that it was seven months of evidence... Uh, 200 and odd witnesses and, you know, terabytes and terabytes of information and there was still stuff that was left over. Um, so, yeah, in the book I've tried to sort of bring it all together and use some of that stuff that didn't make the trial but was out there in previous um, uh, hearings and previous um, judgments and and obviously other stuff that I've, I've sort of dug up along the way. So, yeah, I've tried to bring it all together and, uh, yeah, you two... Like you wouldn't be sick of my voice or anything. <laughs> I had to sit there for a week last week and listen to me read it. So, um, but th- I mean that. But that was um, that was great as well because uh, you know when you're writing it, you're not actually reading it; you're just writing it. So it was good to good to get it out one last time. I'll probably put it on a shelf and never think about it again. <laughs> well, we felt quite privileged because we had a private yeah. audience and have you reading the book to us um, in the studio was fantastic. So let's talk about some of those details. Now, we know Edward's criminal past begins in 1988 in Huntingdale on Valentine's Day when he breaks into a room. He uh, pins a young woman down while she's sleeping Luckily, um, that attack is thwarted. He leaves, and he leaves behind a kimono. But the interesting thing is, in the months before that attack, there was some very strange goings-on in Huntingdale. Mm, Very odd, indeed. So, as you say, that that is the start of the criminal part of the story, but the story begins many, many years before that, um, as we we found out um, in bits during the trial. But that little portion of the story begins... um, a month or so before in Huntingdale, which I mean, people who are from that area will know, it's they, it was a new or a new build area at that time in 87, 88. So there are a lot of new houses being built, some of them without even fences at the back. And they were all, you know, square blocks, you know, pretty, pretty standard. Um, but it was a very tightly knit sort of community. And so when in mid January, um, in a place in Harpenden Street, um, some women's underwear and a kimono went missing off a washing line. Um, it was strange, but, you know, it was one of those things. Then on the 21st of January 1988, um, just down the road, um, there was a report of a man trying to break in to a house. He's um, thwarted, he runs off, but at the time, the, the woman later tells the authorities he's wearing a wraparound garment like a sarong or a nighty or something silky. Mm. So that's two. Then on the same day, um, uh, a little bit later on in the morning, um, on the same street in Huntingdale Road, he does break in to another house um, and is spotted in the spare room going through the dresser door, a drawer, wearing a blue satin nighty. So that's three. Then two days later, um, a man tries to break into a house on Huntingdale Road. He's disturbed by a dog. It's four. Uh, 28th, man appears over a fence. Um, a woman there recognised the man from the previous break-in a couple of nights before. So now, 
within the space of um, you know a week, you've got a distinct pattern already. There's four more of these um, on the in, the, in February. Um, a woman's clothing stolen from the washing line, including a white kimono. Then you've got a woman um, waking up to find a man wearing the kimono, rifling through her knicker drawer. Then in um, uh, February the 11th, you've got another report of um, a man trying to break in to a house with the back um, at the back sliding door. Um, and then on the 15th, or the, the night of Valentine's Day and into the 15th, that's when the Huntingdale break-in happens and the, the, the young teenage girl is attacked and the kimono is left behind. Yeah. So you've got, you've got a distinct pattern there, obviously. Yep. Very similar circumstances, very similar reports, very similar descriptions of the man, about 180 centimetres tall, um, sort of maybe early to mid-twenties, dark hair, short cut, um, and then you've got the break-in. But that wasn't the end of it because in the October... Um, of the same year, um, at 78A Harpenden Street, a woman is um, having a shower before she goes to bed. And um, she leaves, uh, she lets her cat out and then goes to the shower and leaves her door open. When she exits the shower, um, she notices the door to the toilet is shut, which she thinks is a bit strange because she never shuts it but doesn't think anything of it. Walks down the hall, a person wearing a nightie and wearing a pair of women's underwear on their head um, with using the um, uh, leg holes for eyes, attacks her, jumps her, um, and tries to restrain her. Um, she fights back, luckily, um, kicks him uh, in a vulnerable part of the uh, anatomy, which um, you can imagine where that might be, given that he's wearing a nightie, um, and, and, and he escapes. Yeah. And so you've got, you've got that bulk of inc incidents um, in a very short space of time, including the one that obviously we now know a lot about but didn't know anything about then because even though it was reported and um, some effort was put in to um, trying to find who that man was, they, they hit a brick wall, literally yeah. hit a brick wall, and they, could, they, couldn't, um, they couldn't get any, any, any further, really. And you can understand, I mean, at the time, you know, these things, really, the, the first ones, are, are very much peeping Tom kind of incidents, which you wouldn't expect to make the media at the time. Ali, you know, it, you would have seen some very unusual things in your 50 years reporting from inside courtrooms. You know, have you seen examples of this where you've seen this kind of escalation? Um, well, I've seen plenty of examples of escalation where you've got petty offenders who've been jailed, graduated as hardened, serious criminals. You've seen domestic violence, which has, has escalated mm. into murder. And, but a random serial killer, they're in a category of their own, and that's why they're so hard to detect. There are no alarm bells, no symptoms, no warning signs. You've got Eric Edgar Cook, who is probably our worst quiet family man, helped his neighbour take out the rubbish, and there was no pattern. His victims were young man, a young man, a middle-aged man, a young female babysitter, but it's just all over the place. And then you had, of course, the Burnies, David and Catherine Burney, who virtually came out of the blue. No record, no previous indication of what they were about to do. And the Burnies even had the distinction of being caught and identified before they discovered the victims. Bodies. So even when the girls go missing, and I've liked with the Burnies, and I have found in my experience with police, they are very, very reluctant to even mention the word serial killer. Yes. I don't know to this day why that is, whether it, they feel it might hamper or restrict the investigation, but they get very, very angry when the media starts talking about a serial killer. And we don't do it very often. It's usually when there's like three to four girls, as with the Burnies, went missing over a period of weeks. Girls who have got no history, family, good background, that sort of thing. So um, it's, it is a very strange thing, but, but serial killers, especially in, in WA, cross-dressers are not going to turn into to serial killers. And that's all that would have been seen as at the time. Peeping Tom, cross-dresser, yeah. that was it.
Yeah. And I know, you know, there are so many cases around the world. And Kate, when you were researching for this podcast, you came across many cases overseas that had, you know, really startling similarities uh, to Claremont. Yeah. And um, just being a true crime buff myself anyway, um, you, you just, all of this just looked like the pattern of a serial killer. Obviously, the one uh, the most recent case, I guess, would be the Golden State Killer. That's probably one that escalated from burglary to rape and then murder. Joseph D'Angelo, he was only arrested in 2018 and very recently uh, jailed for life. Um, but it's so stark how similar this case is because uh, the, one of the main investigators who actually helped catch him was Paul Holes and he said a breakup with his fiance may have started this reign of terror so emotional turmoil may have actually started the Golden State Killer. Um, he was responsible for more than 120 burglaries, then 50 rapes and 13 murders um, like S. Like Edwards, his crimes escalated, yeah. starting with the burglaries, um, and the way he was found was quite similar. Not not exactly the same, but through DNA yeah. um, genealogy, um, they went through a family tree, found his, sorry, great 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 grandfather dating back to the 1800s, found 25 different family trees, and then ruled out people until they got to him, basically. So um, a lot more work went into finding the Golden State Killer, but it's just incredible how similar it is. And there is another case that was sent in to us by an overseas listener. Um, it's the Clark Baldwin case. He yeah. uh, was an Iowa truck driver. He's responsible for... Uh, well, he hasn't actually been convicted, but... Um, police think he's responsible for the murders of three women in the early 90s. It's a 29-year-old case. Um, he was also charged previously with rape. Um, and the clues that got to solve his case were stacked away in police yeah. boxes for 20-odd years. It was only because one of the police officers thought, well, how cool would it be if I were to solve a cold case? So joined yeah. up with someone and said, let's go look. They dug through old files, found how these cases were quite similar. They eventually found who they thought was going to be the perpetrator, followed him, got, a, got his DNA off a peach can, orange peelings and a soda collected from yeah. his rubbish. And, you know... How similar is that? Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> absolutely. That somewhere before. The police commissioner actually said to me at the time, this case is, even though we're trying to do the FBI profiling, which you can do mm. in a place like the United States, he said this is going to get down to good old-fashioned police work. Mm. And that's exactly what happened yeah. in the end, just yeah. going through file by file by file. Mm. And, of hand. course... Forensics and DNA is absolutely the key in all of these now cold is, cases yeah. that are, are now being solved decades and decades later. And uh, Tim, you mentioned the kimono earlier and, mm. and talked about how that investigation was hitting the brick walls. Um, but after that, there was another very bizarre chain of events. Yeah, so regular listeners will remember sliding doors moments or yep. those little moments that changed the whole investigation. And, and this was one of them. So... When they got to that, the break-in um, in, in Huntingdale, uh, what had happened was um, the year earlier, um, a lady called Victoria Clark had been murdered in Victoria Park. Her body had been found in her flat. She'd been raped. She'd been strangled with her own um, track pants. And um, obviously, horrendous crime, very serious crime, which was taken very seriously by the police. So they set up their own um, little task force. Um, uh, and they called it the Southside Rapist Task Force or something along those lines because they were convinced this person had, would have uh, struck before um, and it escalated up. So they had, this, they had this little mini task force going and when they expanded it out, um, they told all the um, detectives to look for break-ins with a sexual motive. And when February 88, when Huntingdale happened, um, that fell in under that auspice. So um, some detectives, um, uh, young detectives um, at the time, were, were placed onto that and told to look, told to, 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 go, to go and investigate. Without the Victoria Clark murder, I, I'm convinced, and so is the um, former copper that I spoke to for the book, um, that 
if that hadn't happened, then they wouldn't have looked as closely at Huntingdale. It would have just been a break-in, a bit weird, but, you know. So that's, that's the first sliding door. So they're looking. Um, but after a couple of days, they've got this kimono, they've got this knot, these knotted um, tights, they've got a very distressed young girl, um, they've got a phone unplugged, so they know that something, something is going on, but they, that they just can't get any further. So the detective um, who uh, was running the case had a mate who came to him one evening and said, I've got another mate down the road who's trains dogs as a hobby. And one of those training things is um, sniffer dogs. He's training them to be sniffer dogs. At this point, sniffer dogs are not a thing in West Australian police at all. He said, what do you think? Should we have a go? And the detective says, why not? Um, what have we got to lose? So they did. They brought these two dogs, gave, them, uh, gave the dogs the kimono um, that found at Huntingdale to sniff and set them off. And as I mentioned before, um, some of the houses didn't have fences on the back. So the detective um, who told me this um, said he was stood in the middle of a field with three of his colleagues watching these two dogs go like this, thinking they look pissed and it's never going to work. These dogs independently went straight to the same back door, sliding door, sat down and looked. And the detectives looked at each other and said, I can't believe that's just happened. <laughs> So they clocked the house, um, and his mate said, well, let's do it again later with two different dogs just to make doubly sure. So they did. So they brought two more dogs back. The dogs went, did exactly the same route and went exactly the same house. So the detectives knocked on the door um, thinking that they had their perp. They, think, they thought at this point, well, the, the, this must be our man. This must be our, our boy. Knocked on the house. Young, uh, a couple, um, middle-aged couple lived there. Um, Two of them took the um, male occupant of the house, two of them took the female occupant of the house and grilled them, um, seriously grilled them. Um, you know, what do you know about this kimono? Um, well, I, that is, that's my kimono. That's, that's, this is what the lady said, that's my kimono and I can prove it. And she produced the sash of the kimono that matched the kimono that was left in Huntingdale. So they knew they had the right house. Um, and they thought they had the right man. But it unfortunately for them, the couple had a rock-solid alibi. They were actually out that night. Um, so that's the second sliding door moment. The fact that they found these, that the, the fact that he had these dogs, the fact that the dogs did their job, the fact that they went to the right house, the fact that they got the kimono, um, and then they knew that the kimono had been stolen. So that is when they went back and said, right, we need to look at all these things, all this area, as anything else happened like this, and that list of 10 that I just mentioned 20 minutes ago came up. And in that list of 10 was one of them, the sliding door, where four latent fingerprints were taken, put in a box and stored for 30 years. And so that's the third sliding door, is that the guy that took that, those fingerprint lifters was a guy called Murray Smallpage, who ended up being a very, very, very senior officer in this state, and very, very well-renowned for being super meticulous. And it just so happened that the detective who was running the case knew Murray from the academy and said, can you come and help me be my exhibits officer on this particular investigation? And so that's four sliding doors in, just in, in Huntingdale, and one sliding door with four fingerprints on it that eventually gave them a name, which eventually yeah. led Shut to... Yeah. yeah, I mean, it took decades, but thank God that uh, this evidence was held and stored and dragged back out at a later date. And, you know, uh, almost, thank goodness as well, that there was this other case that led it mm. to Huntingdale. Ali, do you remember the Southside rapist case? I remember it only as um, Tim was saying because the quirky similarity of Victoria Clark yeah. and um, Victoria Park, but also that was a case where the rapist did turn into a killer, mm. but not the sort of serial killer he, I understood it was like a home invasion, a break-in, yeah. mm. and he, like most rapists um, who are trying to subdue their victim, will accidentally strangle or, or suffocate them and turn into a killer. Yeah, yeah. this guy um, did turn into a multiple killer, though, a guy called David Masters. Um, he, was, he was Victoria Clark's killer. He killed again after that. 
fled to Got Queensland, yeah. and um, he was actually he he wasn't actually caught. He confessed. He was confessing to the one murder, and, and the to the, the other one. There was another one about a girl yeah. who he drove from uh, Queen to Queensland or somewhere. He's picked her up. Yeah, there's yeah. two. Yeah. There were two, but the other patterns of a serial killer goes out stalking specifically to kill. Yeah, I just don't think there's any way you can predict that no. from anything. I mean, you could look at events that have happened that. That's happened a million times. They don't turn into serial it's killers. The benefit you know. of hindsight yes, as well. Yes, wonderful yeah, hindsight. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, of course, we did see in this case there was very clear escalation. After Huntingdale, Edward struck again in 1990 when he ambushed Wendy Davis at Hollywood Hospital. And then in 1995, of course, in the trial, we heard the horrific details of the rape of a young teenager at Karakata. And, Tim, I didn't know, but after leaving the cemetery to go in search for help, she still very much feared for her life and for good reason. Mm. Yeah. This, uh, I've read it, I've read it, and the, the account of this, I've read her um, statements numerous times now, having you know, done the trial and writing the book, and it still, it still gives me chills what happened to her on that night. Um, and, yeah, so um, after... After the attack, and she'd be dumped in the bushes and then dumped in the bushes again, it's at that point that Carmel Barber Gallo, in her closing, said she, she postulated that that was when Edwards would have killed her or could have killed her mm. and maybe would have killed her um, unless um, another sliding door. She, she, did, she couldn't really say why, although there were security guards and, and, and there were a couple of security guards that gave evidence at the trial about the, um, the laps that they were doing and torches and, and, and the like. So she did. She managed to escape, as we know. Um, and but she didn't scream. No. no. She played dead. Yeah. Yeah. Naked from the waist down. Um, my, when myself and Kate did the video that, that, um, of, of the places of the trial that you might have seen online, we walked... We did that route that she would have walked up um, um, up past the cemetery, and then there's a couple of turns, and it's a good oh. sort of 750 meters, maybe a kilometer yeah. at least. Um, she would a have lot been of houses as well. Yeah, 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 but probably not as many at that time. Yeah. But she's semi-naked from the waist down. A, a horrific ordeal, obviously. Um, when she just before she got to the hospital, um, she saw a white van, which is interesting because the Security guard Wayne Wookie at the hospital also saw a white van, yeah. um, which we now know he identified as a Telstra van. Um, but yes, so the, the young lady, she saw a white van, um, panicked, or self-preservation kicked in, really, yeah. and, um, and hid, and hid again for a, for a long time while that van went past her. We will never know whether it was Edwards um, recirculating, looking for her, whether it was coincidentally another white um, vehicle in the area. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just another layer of terror yeah. that you can imagine what she was feeling at that time, and then to think he might be coming back for me, which is which is what Carmel Barbagallo told Justice Hall she thought he was going to do. Yeah, it's unimaginable that journey that she took in trying to get to safety and trying to get to help, and wondering if this person was circling the block, coming back for her. Um, Ali, I think what was so very interesting during the trial was the bond that was formed between the victims, who we know came to the trial, um, and, of course, the victims' families. Absolutely. The two surviving victims came right um, from the very first start and continued to come, as did the families. Um, they were very, very heavily protected. Uh, I've never seen the protection and security around a family like that. They had their own section. They were taken in special entrance. They were taken out of special way, except for the ones who wanted to walk out the front. But certainly the two victims of the sexual assaults and the rape um, were very, very strong in coming forward. I do know the Karakata rape victim through very, very close friends, and she's a, a very strong, very, very brave person. And um, the horrendous part about that particular rape, too, it was a shocking the thing you'd see straight out of a horror movie where mm -hmm. she was dragged off the street. She was 17. She'd just virtually left school um, in her own neighbourhood. And she was hogtied with a hood over her head. She didn't know whether she was going to live or die, but she had the, the sort of presence of mind at the time to stay quiet. And then when he moved her a couple of times and, and pushed her into the bushes, that's when she 
got up and ran, so she had the presence of mind yeah. and survival instincts to do that. Yeah, and I think during the, the trial, I think the victims were the front of everybody's minds throughout the course of the Absolutely. trial. Absolutely. It was very awkward yeah. um, dealing because we dealt very closely with these families yeah. right from the start and became emotionally involved. Mm. But then when we cover the trial, you've got to forget, um, you've got to sort of remember rather that we're there then at the trial as journalists, not as support members or family or friends. Mm. And I did understand that there was a lot of angst um, from the families to certain aspects of the reporting. Yeah. Um, as reporters, we can't really minimise or sanitise the facts that we're doing. We've got to give a fair and accurate report. The judge was very, very careful. In, in fact, one time he actually closed the court and realised that what he, by closing the court or suppressing the fact that we couldn't describe how these girls were killed which was the crux of the whole trial yeah. and what everybody wanted to know, that by us going on television and writing the newspaper, that we know, we were told today how these girls were killed, but we can't tell you. Yeah. Well, he opened the court immediately the next day because he realised yeah. that you, you do so much to protect the family, but the family were there. They knew exactly, as was everybody who went into that courtroom knew. Yeah. And so there was this sensitivity, um, certainly to do with um, items that we wouldn't, reporters, reporters anyway. We do have our self-regulatory rules of, of what we report and how we paraphrase uh, very graphic, very gruesome, very confronting or intimate details. Uh, but of course, being family members, they were a bit sensitive to what we reported. Yeah. So it was very awkward and very difficult. And I do understand that. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, as a community, I think we all felt um, a sense, we, we felt protective of these victims, the surviving victims and the victims that were gone and their families. And as a community, you know, we almost felt like we wanted to protect them from any further grief that they could possibly yeah. be. But that's the balancing act you've got to do as a, as a reporter. Um, you do. Of course, you feel sympathy and of course you feel protective um, and with a trial of that length seven months you see you, you you see them in the cafe you see them in the lift you see them in the foyer you say good day you, you you know you ask how they are but you don't want to impose at the same time yeah um, and it's a balancing act it is and sometimes you get it wrong um, sometimes you go too far the other way and, and read the paper and you think oh I, I haven't gone hard enough there um, and you do, you do cop it. Um, I know Ali copped it. Um, I know I copped it yeah. uh, at, at stages. Um, but you know that's 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 part of the process as well. It's part of the it's part of the job. I think too often the defence have got to put their case forward, and, and the de and the defence lawyer Paul Jovic came up with a fairly uh, bombshell opening when mm. he said you've got the wrong guy, and yeah. the the evidence is contaminated. So when it got to that. Uh, evidence with, with Path West, we did have to report the flaws and the mistakes that they, I mean, Path West came under extraordinary scrutiny. I, don't, I think any profession, if you had to look back on whether you've put the wrong date or the wrong file somewhere, uh, but when this was right at the crux of this case, it, it looked for a while there that there, there had been some errors yeah. made and that he could get off. Mm. Yeah. Well, that disturbed the families. Mm. Yeah. But again, we have to do both sides of the story. And, and we knew just how heavily invested people were in mm. in this case and in this trial. And Kate, you know, we would get emails um, asking us things like, you know, please don't refer to the victims as girls, they're women. Yeah, absolutely. And I think while we were doing this, the victims were at the forefront of our minds as well mm. as the victims' families. But everything that we did was... The reason why we're doing this podcast and the reason why the trial is there is because three women are dead and we have to try and respect their memories as well as as being, like Ali said, report the facts but try not to be gratuitous mm. for no reason or give too many intimate details because obviously that's you know, we're trying to yeah. look after mm. them. But we did, you're right, we did have a lot of uh, emails um, through to our podcast email just saying that, you know, these three women have been in our collective conscience yeah. for 20, 24 years, 25 years. Um, we all know their faces and we heard about their lives for the last 20 
years, but particularly in the last seven months, we heard really intimate details of their lives. We saw the inside of their houses. We, we saw um, what, you know, they just left their house thinking that they're going to come back. And, yeah. you know, it's just a moment frozen in time. Um, and, you know, what their friends described them as and, and how, how they were their last nights. I mean, we heard about Jane becoming upset on her last night um, who hasn't, you know, been a little bit drunk and got upset. Yeah. Like, you connect so, so much with, with them. And I think that's when we decided... Uh, we didn't actually speak about it, but I think we all knew that we needed to do this in a way that really had them at the forefront. Yeah. It's, not about, it's not about the perpetrator, it's about the victims. Yeah, and I think, you know, everybody in the community, there's almost this feeling that you know them personally, even if you don't know them. And Tim, I know, um, you know, in your book, it's interesting you refer to them by their first names. Yeah, um, that was a decision I took before I'd even started writing, actually. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a strange decision to take because obviously I didn't know them um, personally. But like everyone, you feel like you do know, certainly you know the story and you know, and, and you know parts of them. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a little bit what Kate was saying there. Um, um, it's their story uh, probably more than a story about Edwards. Mm. Um, and I don't mention him at all um, for the first half of the book. Um, I, I, I reference him, obviously, but I don't actually directly address him. Um, it's a lot more about um, Sarah Jane and Kira um, and, the, and the police officers um, and the families. And when I, when I start, when I, when I made the decision in my head, I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll just see how it goes. But it just did not feel right to refer to them as Ms. Rimmer, Ms. Spears and Ms. Glennon, um, even though that's how they were referred to a lot during the trial. Um, it just didn't, it didn't read right to me and it didn't, re it didn't, um, didn't sound right in my head when I was when I was um, when I was putting it together, um, and so look, I, it's it's not meant in any disrespect at all. It's just it's 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 more um, yeah, it's, it's just more a fact that you, you feel like you know them, and I I feel like the readers will will, will know them too, or certainly yeah. by the end of the book they will. Yeah, and Ali, you obviously, because you were reporting on this case from the very, very beginning, um, you know, you did know the families and do know the families quite well. And, of course, you also know someone quite well was Lance Williams. You know, you met him um, many times. But I think what I found interesting about that period of the investigation, the macro investigation, um, was that he was actually never named as a suspect he never was named by a police. It was the media who brought him to everybody's attention because it was such a public um, following by the police where they sat outside his house for oh, three, four, five, six years uh, following him to and from work, uh, went into his house, ripped up carpet, dug up the entire backyard. Uh, but the police never, ever named him as a suspect and therefore they didn't name him when he was cleared so we really didn't know what had happened we just knew that it went away but he was a very very unusual person and and I think the police were damned if they did damned if they didn't because he was a guy who admitted to me that he'd driven around that particular block 30 to 40 times in one night yeah. now to a policeman looking for a serial killer who is looking targeting that area here was this guy who said, yes, he picked up young women and drove them between Bayview Terrace and Glide Street, Mosman Park, which was the exact area where the three had, had all gone missing. So he was a very unusual person. He, was, he took the lie detector test, even though the, I asked him, haven't you got a lawyer to... He said, no, no, he was a very submissive person, very obedient, very childlike, mm. uh, with a lot of problems, a lot of um, psychological problems that made him that way and I think he had this addictive personality where which caused me he said I used to drive around um, obsessively the same way he told me that he'd given up alcohol on August 3 a certain date at a certain time so he, ha he had that what today we would probably call being on the spectrum but um, he suffered that for many many years and yeah. uh, he just endured it. I mean it's interesting because you've got this guy who is um, a Clermont 
serial killer suspect, yet yes. he is an absolute open book. Totally. And he even the told, lie detector the lie detector test. Test. He told you the yeah, questions he, he failed. He did. He said they. Well, he said I did ask a lawyer, and he told me not to do it. And he said, but I thought I should. And he said they asked me six questions, and the one they asked me, have you ever intentionally hurt anybody? And he said I couldn't answer that because he said when we were kids, five or six years old, I he and his younger brother used to hit each other all the time. So he he was that um, childlike in obeying the answer and, and just yeah. giving the answer that... And the, and the unfortunate thing as well, is they had this profile. They, and they, totally. And, and, yeah, yeah. The, and Macro had made so much of getting this profile. They, they brought in a guy called Claude Minasini. There was yep. another guy called Dave Caldwell. Yep. And they had all this money that Dennis Glennon had raised. Yep. Um, and so they had, this, they had this slush fund, really. And, and they put... And they, and they didn't want to let it go, actually, I was, in that way. I was yeah. told during the research for the book that David Caporn was obsessed with yes. FBO profilers yes. and, and yeah. profiling techniques. Yes. And um, the, one of the detectives actually used his desk for a while when, when Caporn was away. And he said it was full of, of references to profilers and profiling and FBI methods Which, and techniques. So they had this profile. Mm. And then they had Lance. Mm. And they matched. Yeah. They, they said... He'd be very meticulous about his car. He'd 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 have access to um, a loner, uh, yeah. the usual yeah. profile. He'd, you know, he'd, yeah. he'd live at home, or, mm. or he'd, he'd be able to go out at night. But he'd be a regular Joe, and and so all all these boxes were being ticked all the way along. Oh, and absolutely! It, yes. it turns out the profile was pretty much spot on. <laughs> yeah, it just they had the wrong black. Well, yeah. uh, this is the argument I remember hearing this at the very time about this other police commissioner who said it's all very well you can profile a Quantico profile in a place as diverse as America, so you get it down to a male white, age between mm. such and such. Well, I could have told you that. Though. Well, then you've got <laughs> but here yeah. in Perth you've got ninety percent <laughs> of the population, yeah. Yeah. whereas over there they can narrow it down through a very very diverse. And they're quite a different. I mean, you were talking about the Golden State. I was in San Francisco when there were guys were running around at the time, but it's just a different, different world. Mm. And and while a lot of the things matched in terms of the profile, mm. there was a whole pile of things that didn't match. But we didn't know about it at the time. And I'm talking, Tim, of course, about the forensics, which were flying around the place. Mm. And and it wasn't matching. No, no, they couldn't. I mean. And again, so Lance readily, readily, readily gave his DNA, totally, yeah. gave his hair, and he didn't have to. He wasn't legally bound by then, but he, as you say, he's submissive and trying to please and all, all those type of things. And the he ceiling had, fell in when they tried yeah. to put a listening device up there and there's they, no complaints coming no, out. No, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a true story. <laughs> yeah. Lance, was, he worked for the Department of Roads at the time. Mm. He just left his desk to go make a cup of tea or get a biscuit or something, came back, and there's this huge box <laughs> hanging out of the top of this, uh, some of the, through his ceiling panel mm. where the listening device that the police had used had crashed through. And it was farcical at, 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 at points. Mm. There was police was um, being yeah. follow, following yeah. Lance and the media following both of them. Yes, backwards and forwards. And, um, yeah. you know, so so the, the, the media surveilling the police who were surveilling Lance. Yeah. It was the most um, overt, covert operation yeah. in the history yeah. of yeah. world policing, was never, ever named. Yeah. <laughs> he was never named but, a suspect. And Ali's right there as well. So, and Capon was accused of mm. naming him um, in Parliament by John Quigley and, and wrote a letter to say, I never actually named him explicitly. That was the media. Mm. Um, but, I mean, Capon was cute about it. The, the day, the, the weekend after Lance failed the uh, the, um, the lie detector test, and that was leaked to mm. the uh, to the yep. ABC over there. Um, Gosh, they don't get many leaks. <laughs> no, no, that's why it was so surprising. Um, um, Caporn called him a suspect for the first time mm. after that. Yeah. Mm. So if that's not a tacit. Uh, you know, agreement of, of yeah. the story, and th and then that emboldened, I think, Channel Ten or someone to actually name him in public. Yeah. Um, he was called Lance for 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 many many years, um, cryptically, um, but everyone knew who who he was. Um, but as going back to Nat's question, yes, so the DNA hair, and it was and he was being flown all over the place. Um, they Poor had guy. they yeah. took they took knives out of his car. They had um, there was a there was a report that there was a a knife actually on him on one of these drives. He, you know, he's, he was carrying a knife, um, but he was also very he was a very timid person, and and uh, he, he said I just used to carry a knife in the car to just in case something happened, um, not to do something to you know to protect myself. Um, 
And they tested, and they tested, and they tested, and they could never get a match. They could never get a match. Now, we're talking primitive days of DNA, but still, um, whenever they, w wherever they sent it, FBI, Washington, Canberra, Nothing um, the UK, Negative. they could never pin it. Um, Not until 2009. Uh, well, and then they yeah. did get the match in 2008, and they thought, bingo, bango, bongo, here we go. Not him. Not him. Compared his hair, <laughs> and it was nowhere near. There were, mm. there were, I mean, it was just they were polar opposites, yeah, and that's yeah. that's when um, they had to make the call and um, and basically told Lance and his brother. Um, you won't be seeing us anymore. And, you know, his, his life had been ruined, there's no doubt about it. And then, sadly, you know, 2018, he died of cancer. He and died he was, of cancer. He was young. Yeah. He but, was 60. But throughout that interview, he wasn't particularly fussed or bothered by any of it. Yeah. Not at all. Mm. He was just thought he was, you know, he said, well, they've got their duty to do, and he, he didn't seem to get all that stressed. Yeah. He said, I, I don't like going out that much because I said, I, it, they've got to follow me. And it was almost like, what a nuisance it was for, for them. So he said, yeah. I don't go out. That's what he said to, to me. To cause them trouble. Because he used to go out and drive a lot. He used to go um, drive around. And I suspect they thought anybody that's driving around that much at night. Um, but yeah. that's what he did. He, just uh, drove. he never got an apology, he, did he? No. no. And Dawson says, Christopher... Well, Christo it's too late Christ, after Chris Dawson, he died. the commissioner, mm, said he's not going to get one either. Mm. Um, his mum, Norma, is 87. She's still alive. Has she asked for an apology? Um, no, she, they were very... Um, Submissive too. Yeah. So, but the, the, when we doing the research for the book again, I, I found that everyone was indignant on Lance's behalf, oh. as, as Ali mentioned yeah. there. Um, his parents, um, Peter Wagers, you know, the lawyers, um, you know, even even certain elements of the police, John Quigley, everyone sort of spoke up for him, apart from Lance himself. Um, and then, as you say, 2018, um, he was seriously, seriously ill with cancer, um, but. <laughs> Didn't, didn't want to make a fuss, right mm. to the end, didn't want to make a fuss. Um, rang his mum, said, oh, I think I need to go to the hospital, and within a week he was, he was dead. Oh, and um, he's now, um, well, in, in, in keeping with his life, really, um, is a very small, understated little plaque um, in Karakata Cemetery, um, next to um, a, a very similar, almost identical plaque um, for his dad, who died very soon after Lance did, and those two little plaques are 500 metres from where Jane's plaque is, um, just across um, one of the concrete pathways at Karakata. Um, you, it, with, with, without the trees and the roses in the way, you could literally see yeah. from one, one, one end to the other. And of yeah. course, just one person was responsible for this pain and misery and destroying so many lives, and that's Edwards. Mm. And you know, we heard a little bit about his life during the trial, but there was so much more that we didn't hear, some really disturbing stuff. Yeah. Um, we, again, just a very strange individual. Um, uh, horrific monster, obviously. Um, and signs of that from a very, very early age. Um, uh, sort of, you know, in his very early teens. Um, there was a story that came out before the trial that wasn't actually included in the trial about um, when he lived um, uh, in, um, uh, in, in, his, in his family home. Um, and they'd been there a while, um, but not, not long, um, because he left, the, the Edwards family actually lived in a caravan for many, many years, because his father, um, who's, who worked for Telstra for many, many years, was a team leader and he used to go out into the bush and do um, sort of um, rural connections and, and things like that. And, and so the family, so Edwards and his brother um, and the mother and the father lived in a caravan for most of it Edwards' early childhood. Then um, his sister came along, so there's five of them, and that was the decision that they made then to move to Perth. Um, but the family home was, again, pretty... Um, pretty uninspiring, no carpets on the floor. Um, they struggled, struggled a bit um, for money. Um, and then, yeah, Edwards would have been 13, maybe, um, early teens anyway. And there's a story that, that was told, as I say, pre-trial about um, his family were invited to a barbecue to a neighbor's um, house. And, um, you know, salads and chops and sausages and probably cans of emu export in those days. And, the, um, uh, the lady of the house who'd invited the Edwardses over um, went into her bedroom and found Edwards in the bedroom. 
Um, didn't think anything of it. They were new to the area. She thought he might be lost or something. Didn't think anything of it until the next day when she went back into her bedroom and found her underwear drawer had been rifled through, basically, and um, certain bras had definitely been touched and, um, and rearranged. Um, and she put two and two together. And, um, and, and we're now pretty certain it was. That's what Edwards was doing in there. Um, but that wasn't part of the trial um, because Justice Hall basically ruled it um, inadmissible. He said, it, you know, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's evidence, but it's not evidence that I can really take into account. It's not really going to get me um, to a point where I need to be, um, it, you know, it, at the end or the other end of that, that Edwards's um, life or, or criminal career. Um, and then, as we now know, it escalated from there. Yeah. Um, very undistinguished school career, left at 18, um, put on his, um, on his yearbook or his graduation yearbook that his ambition was to be a life member of AA, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, because um, a bit like Lance, He'd, um, he drank quite heavily um, through his um, late teens into his early 20s. Um, got, a, got a job straight out of school, straight into Telstra. Um, yeah. And we're pretty sure that was through the connections with his father, who was, uh, worked his way up to team leader. So he, he was quite well respected um, in Telstra. Um, but Edwards, had, he'd shown um, affinity for computers and things um, in his teens as well. So that's the, the sort of telecom, telecommunications thing um, fitted him anyway. Um, and so from being a very sort of loner, couldn't, didn't get a girlfriend, had one girlfriend, but it was, you know, which ended pretty quickly in school. Within three years, um, he's married um, to his first wife. They bought a house. Um, she, he's under pressure. But we also now know that by then, he'd also broken into a house in Huntingdale, grabbed a teenager from behind with a cloth with mm. a kimono, and he'd also attacked Wendy Davis at Hollywood Hospital in that time. Um, and, yet, and yet he is still only 23. And so you can see the escalation going already from, um, you know, knicker draw to break-ins at Huntingdale all the way through involving women's underwear to the attack to the second attack in the October, then we jump to Wendy at, in, you know, in broad daylight, basically in the middle of middle of middle of the workday. That's right, and I think it's um, you know quite staggering to people how that whole um, case was handled back then mm. when Wendy Davis was ambushed, you know, by someone who's in her workplace while he's on the job, and I mean, Kate, you know, the fact that this didn't raise more red flags at the time. Again, with people who listen to the podcast, they are just, you know, absolutely incensed. Yeah, I can't tell you the number of emails we had from people saying, how could this have been looked over? And how could she, how could he not be charged with anything more than just common assault? And the general sentiment is, if he was charged with something more like a sexually based... Um, there was no evidence. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if he'd, if he'd been charged with that, I mean, he went to a, an, a, a sexually... A sexual offenders program, yeah. Offenders well, they program. just did that. See, so, yeah, we talk, we've had this yes, um, thing because <laughs> sitting in court day after day for 50 years, you hear thousands of these and you yeah. can see from both the police and from the actual court itself, this was just a common assault. Now, the word common assault... What do they charge with causing? There's the next step up, which is assault causing bodily harm. Mm -hmm. There was no injury. Assault causing grievous bodily harm. Mm -hmm. Certainly no evidence of that. Um, and as you say, that this, they, the police would have looked at that, seen 21-year-old. What was he? Broad. He wasn't. Wasn't yep. a home invasion. It wasn't mm -hmm. in a dark alley. Mm -hmm. So there was no premeditation. It was in broad daylight in a, in a public office space. So, so public that he got arrested within a, he got grabbed within a few minutes and it was all over in a few seconds. There's no way they could have charged him with anything other than common oh, assault. I would argue that it's a bit more than a common assault though. I mean, but that's she, she, yeah, she said that she, you know, I, I don't know about she you. She said but, that later. Well, she never got a statement. She, uh, she never, she never gave a statement to police. So she didn't, she didn't seem to see it as anything more no, than that. No, she, she. I mean, she's. When we did the interview with her, she yep. said, 
you know, I mean, obviously we, we know now. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know about you, but if I got something shoved over my mouth and was dragged from behind, I would certainly fear for my life oh, as well. Oh, absolutely, and, yes. And, and I think if I... I would be enraged if, if the person who did that got charged with a common assault, something that would get them a suspended sentence. Well, there's nothing and more she, with no evidence. Yeah. See, there was no mm. injury. And, and the fact that it was all over in a few seconds and... Because he she fought, said, she I'm fought back. She, she said he kicked yeah. off. This lasted about ten seconds. Now mm -hmm. I'm just looking at this from a police and from a magistrate's point mm -hmm. of view. Uh, the police charge him with common assault because there is no other charge. Well, it's deprivation of liberty. They could have gone with ten yeah. seconds. Mm -hmm. But if he got her into the toilet, um, yeah, but he didn't. No, no, no. And so there's. I see in her mind, and I think probably finding out who it was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. would have exacerbated yeah. her fear and aggravated her fear that he's turned into that. But you look at the magistrate, it looks at this and he says, first thing they look at, no record. How old? 21. Good family, solid job, hard worker, all over in a matter of seconds. No one was hurt. And he showed, they love this, they showed remorse immediately. Sorry, 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 yes, sorry. Yes. So, as I said, it wasn't in a home invasion. It was in a public place. And they accepted it as a brain snap. And so that sort of common I, assault, like a punch in a pub or yeah. someone grabbing, spiking somebody's drink, um, that's how yeah. they, it's, it's, there were no injuries. Well, I the think thing also that it comes also a little bit back to how Wendy dealt mm. with the incident at the time. Mm. She didn't necessarily create a fuss. Her, her husband was a police officer. Yeah. She just assumed that uh, the police would do the right thing, that everything would take the course that it should. And she didn't, you know, she didn't kick up a stink. And, you know, I, I actually worked across the road back then at Hollywood Village in 1990 when that happened. And... I would have screamed blue murder yeah. and I would have wanted the book thrown at him and, she and I would have yeah, chased it yeah, up, but yeah, she, she didn't. She didn't scream. Well, she she told us that, you know, when she was talking to her husband, they thought the charge that he would get would be something like deprivation yeah. of liberty because, you know, obviously he was in the police I think there has to be a force, time limit. Ten, what, she said 10 seconds of being dragged back as... Deprivation of she, liberty is usually a bit longer. Yeah. One mm. thing I did find really interesting from our, when we interviewed her for the podcast, uh, she said, uh, and it's been it's been mentioned by the criminologist we spoke to as well. She said when he when he eventually let go, uh, she looked at him and she said his eyes looked liquid. Mm. He had liquid eyes, and and that's the the criminologist also told us that with psychopaths and with people mm. like that it when they snap and when they go into this different space their eyes almost look black like their eyes change and i found i found that fascinating that she she remembered that 20 well, yeah 30 i don't almost. think they would have accepted that as evidence in court no either. i don't think they would have accepted that but i just found it in, just incredible that she remembered that oh I'm i mean sure she remembers she every detail yeah. though and I'm sure, too, like the Karakata girl, too, once they found out who he was and how close, yeah. that would they really blow your mind completely. Oh. And I, think I mean, if she'd found out that the guy who did it was now the Prime Minister of Australia, she might have a completely different aspect and think, it, oh, it's just a snap-off thing. But now that she knows how close and thinks maybe... Mm -hmm. But I don't know what they could have done. Even if they... What could they have done? Jailed him for 100 years? No. They, mm. There's nothing you could do. So the Telstra response uh, was, you know, very strange. Yeah. When, when you get attacked in your workplace and then you get summoned to that person's workplace and told that, oh, you know, poor bloke, he's got a few problems at the moment, but he's a great yeah. worker and, hey, we wouldn't want him to lose his job. Well, That's a bizarre It thing is bizarre, but as you know, in our industry too, if there's been some sort of incident like... <laughs> that <laughs> it's gone away very quickly Tim, Tim I'm wondering if the handling of that particular incident I'm wondering if that actually minimized it in Edward's mind because when you think about the way he explained that incident to his fiance do you think that that helped him to go well it wasn't that bad well Tim it, it, how do we know what's going through his be, mind but it could it's be the just, other way around because yeah. the way the way He's always dealt with things, and the way he dealt with things right up until the, a month before the trial was to deny them to himself, mm. deny them to everyone, and only give the, the little bits that he needed to to keep going. So when he, when he, when he told his... Um, well, he had to tell his first wife, who was his fiancée at the time, because he was supposed to be picking her up from work that afternoon, and he didn't turn up. 
because he was in the cop shop um, uh, getting processed, um, and she was left, um, uh, you know, um, on her Jack Jones outside the office in the city. So he had to tell her something, but he only told her enough, and he, he must have told her enough because she was in court. Uh, I've been told that definitely she was in court that day when he were, when he pleaded guilty and he got the when he got the probation. Mm -hmm. So she must have known something, but not enough to obviously put her off because um, they got married soon yeah. after that. Um, he minimised it to his second wife. Um, in very early days of their courting, um, he stopped the car um, while they were there and said, yeah, I had a brain snap. Um, my first wife was putting pressure on me. So he admitted that to her. Um, but, you know, it was over in a matter of seconds. I only grabbed her. I didn't hurt her. Um, and persons or the people that he was really or had to be honest with were the two psychologists that he spoke to before the sentencing um, and that was when he really when he admitted basically that it was what was going on at home that had forced him into what he did then at, that day at work but what we don't know and we can't know and we'll never know because there's no records of it because Telstra can't find them is what he told work or what his what he told his dad who told work we don't know we can't we can't know any of that because there are no records at all there's no record of the m meeting that Wendy swears happens with the manager where she was basically apologized to but then um, you know uh, brushed aside um, her concerns were brushed aside um, there, there is no record of any disciplinary hearing no m record of any follow-up um, with Telstra on, on how young Bradley is doing um, the only record we then have is a couple of years later when he gets his promotion. Um, so, at, at, that, at that very level, at that level, uh, it's uh, bizarre that there's no record of it. And I think it speaks volumes that eventually, after a, a week of trying to um, trying to get them get something out of them, they did issue a apology to yeah. Wendy about how it was how it was dealt with at the time. But yeah. without that Hollywood incident, they would have had no fingerprints to match up. Well. That's exactly right. That is true. That is the one thing that police did do is take the, take his fingerprints. Fingerprints, and that's how they match the fingerprints it, 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 from the exactly. Huntingdale to the Hollywood. Otherwise, yeah. they would never have got him. That's right. And we did hear. Um, obviously, we you know spoke about Edward's second wife, and I think for a lot of people, this is still one of the most frustrating and unanswered questions of this trial. Is when Edward's second wife um, said that you know she was sick and tired of the lies. Uh, that's why she left the marriage and she feared for her life. And, you know, we were just, you know, still to this day, everyone's saying, why? Yeah, and still we get questions into the mm. podcast and people saying, why did she fear for her life? What lies was he, what lies was he telling? Why? And why wasn't she able to tell anyone? I mean, even, even in the trial when she was being cross-examined by Paul Jovic, she tried to... She tried to say it again, you know, I was sick of the lies, I feared for my life, and then cut off again, you know. It's, it's a source of frustration yeah. for us, and, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that led her to, to keep those bank records. So we do have, uh, you know, her evidence showed that he did go to Claremont and that he was lying when he said he'd never been to Claremont until 2009 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and... Yeah, I just, yeah. It, it's one of those sources of frustration. I think there's a ruling somewhere, isn't there, Tim, about lying not in the indication of guilt? Mm, yeah, something <laughs> like that. And Tim, I hadn't heard this before, but there was a cryptic clue that their marriage was unravelling. Yeah, so um, around about that time that Kate's just mentioned when, um, when she started keeping the records... Um, which, were, which is a bit strange in itself. I don't know how many of us in this room have still got their paper bank records from 1997, but Edwards had his in a box in the garage. Um, he had a lot of other things in boxes, which I won't, we won't discuss here, but um, which were a bit more disturbing than that. But So around about that time... Well, now people of, want to know what's yeah. in the box. Well, <laughs> read the book, 3495, on the front, on the way up. Um, uh, yeah, about mid-August, uh, yeah, mid-2014, mid, mid, to, mid she'd started keeping these records um, and was jogging through what these cash payments that he was taking out very regularly, once, twice, three, four times a week, 100, 200, 300, 400 dollars in cash, um, regularly, very regularly, um, including in Claremont. Around about that time, um, on her Facebook page, um, she just posted um, three emojis of three monkeys, um, and one of them had 
the hands over the ears, one of them had the hands over the eyes, one of them had the hands over the mouth. And then in a post underneath, she just put, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. And when I saw that and then married it up with the times of, of what was happening inside that house, um, I, I think I know what she was trying to say, mm. that something really, really bad is going on or has gone on, um, but I can't talk about it. And she left very soon after that, um, tried to talk about it in court, um, and was um, stopped in her tracks. Uh, I know that I, I, I get the legal reasons why that, that they stopped that. Um, you do not want a key witness going off the rails. You do not want an over-emotional witness that might, even even if it's just judge alone, that might um, you know bring something on you on your case that you don't want or you can't get rid of. Um, and so it was Carmel actually that stopped her in the in the in the in the first place. Um, obviously, Paul didn't want it out there um, what she was about to say or what she wanted to say. Um, I, I've had some communication with her um, through the writing of the book and since the trial. Um, I, I get the feeling she does. She will tell this. She will tell her story eventually, but she's very determined to do it in her own way, mm. in her own words. I don't think she'll do an interview. I think she might want to write it. Um, um, where she can have complete control over, over what the message is. Um, um, much like um, the surviving victim of the Bernies did um, a couple of years ago yeah. when she decided to go public with her, um, um, her story um, and was very particular with me about what she wanted in and out. Um, and I, I, I get the impression that Edward's second wife will, will do the same when she's ready. Um, and... Um, yeah, I just, um, I just hope she sends it to me first. <laughs> well, we can only speculate uh, what was going on in that household and, I, you know, we were living in such a vacuum of information at the time, weren't we? So, you know, when the arrest did come, it was an absolute bombshell for everybody involved. And, and Tim, you know, um, you, you talk about just how closely a guarded a secret this was prior to the arrest. Yeah, this was this was fascinating to me as a as a journo. Um, we spent a lot of time trying to get information out of the police, getting nowhere. Um, but a, a couple of them who were on the in the very middle of that very intense bubble in 2016 um, did sit down with me, and it was fascinating to to find out what the process was from the other side, the anxiety, the fear that something was going to leak bef before the arrest happened. Um, the, the anxiety of waiting for the DNA um, result to come back from that Sprite bottle, um, the decision in the, in the first place to actually put Covert on him um, and, 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 and watch him closely. Um, I was told that there was, there was a pretty big fight, actually, internally in the police. Some very senior officers wanted to go low and slow on him. Um, they wanted to like just sit off him for weeks if they if they could to just really get a good picture, um, but the, the 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 decision was taken eventually by the very at the very top. No, we know where he is now. We think we know who he is now. We need to get him now, and so that's why they put the covert on him. They got the sprite bottle. Um, so they had the Sprite bottle. Um, it was Pathwest were told it was coming, and it was at priority one. We don't care what else you've got on today. Put it, you know, stick it in a box somewhere, and don't forget about it. But you know, you do it, do it another day. This is number one priority. Um, Pathwest kept telling the police, "Yeah, well, you'll have them by two. You'll have the results by four. Um, but they were obviously very anxious to get it right. So I've been told that they tested that bottle three times in, um, in about uh, six hours, eight hours. Which we'll, is we'll talk to Brendan about that when incredible. we get to Q&A. I mean, it, it, literally every staff member in Path West must have been swabbing and, you know. Um, so eventually they, the, the results did come back. The very senior police are waiting on that phone call all day. Um, the phone call came so late that um, Police Commissioner Carl Ho Callahan, who amazingly wasn't actually in the very centre of it, he didn't know. He didn't know what was going on until um, he got a call. He'd left for the day. He'd left the police HQ for the day. 
and got told, boss, you need to come back. Carl said, I'm going out for dinner with my wife. What's this about? She said, boss, you need to come back. Um, calls were made to other deputy commissioners who had gone home, media um, liaison people, lawyers, um, and there was eventually a round table at the boardroom at Police HQ about seven o'clock the night before Ed was arrested, and that was when the, the everything was laid out. Yep. But until then, it had been so tightly um, held in that... It was extraordinary, wasn't it? Because you usually get a leak from somewhere, well, yeah. even well, though, the, apart yeah. from the ABC, <laughs> and we know, of course, you get a the... call from a close contact. Yeah. Yeah. So detectives, um, detectives on the cold case, um, the, old, the major, you know, the cold crime squad, on that floor were warned: if you even take a call from a journalist today, I'm going to sack you. I'm, you're, you're gone. Yeah. If you even take the call, you're gone. And the floors above and below, so five and seven, which are major crime and. Um, um, armed Rob, I think, or anyway, senior coppers on either floor above and below knew something was going on but weren't told. There were, I, I would estimate, between six and eight people in police HQ actually knew what was going on, including one media person who had to write the speech that Carlo Callahan was to give after the arrest, in the event that the arrest went okay. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it was fascinating to find out the machinations. Um, and they, uh, the, the main anxiety was it was going to get out and Edwards was going to find out and he was going to do a yeah. runner. Um, and that's what they were really scared about. Um, even though they'd watched him and he was a man of... They knew he was a creature of habit. He didn't go far, he, you know. Um, and, um, and, of course, we know that it did uh, blow up and it was a massive, massive event the next day when he uh, was finally arrested. Um, and now, four years almost to the day of his arrest, come the 23rd of December, he will be sentenced for the murders of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon. So, Kate... Ali, Tim, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you. We will be back for sentencing on the 23rd. That's wherever you get your podcast. Join us then for Claremont In Conversation. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for this special Claremont The Trial live show brought to you by the West Australian. 